Uh, we're very excited to have you here for this um, novel study, uh, the ICON study, which is uh, going to discuss the use of ivermectin in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Um, as we're letting everybody in, I would like to um, introduce our study authors and our uh, content liaison and expert. So we have uh, Dr. Jean Jacques Ryder, um, who is a pulmonary and critical care medicine physician at Broward Health. We have Dr. Juliana Keplovics um, Ryder, who is um, also a pulmonary critical care physician at Broward Health. Welcome guys. Uh, Dr. Michael Sherman, who is Professor Emeritus uh, at the Drexel University College of Medicine. And uh, finally, we are joined by Dr. Ryan Maves, who is our uh, content liaison. He serves as a chair of the COVID-19 Task Force for the American College of Chess Physicians and is an associate professor uh, at the Uniformed Services University and uh, works at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. So uh, welcome everybody. Um, I also wanna quickly uh, give a shout out to my uh, co-moderator, uh, Dr. Divya Patel. Um, and uh, Divya and I have been, this is our fourth uh, time doing this. We're very excited. So if you have any feedback for us going forward on how this might be very uh, more useful for you, please always reach out to us uh, via chest or on Twitter. We're always happy to uh, pick up more tips. Um, I'm going to uh, give our uh, study um, authors and content liaison a second to declare any conflicts. This is uh, Dr. Jean-Jacques Ryder. I have no conflict of interest to report. This is Dr. Juliana Sapelowitz, writer. I also have no conflict of interest to report. Uh, this is Dr. Michael Sherman. Um, my only potential conflict is I'm a writer for MCG Hearst, uh, which is a commercial provider of uh, evidence-based guidelines. And this is uh, Dr. I have no relevant financial conflicts of interest to disclose. I am an investigator on the uh, NIAID Act trial, but received no compensation for that. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, so we're doing well on time, let's get right to it. So we'll move on to our um, learning objective, which basically is to sort of understand why ivermectin was even a choice of an agent for treatment of um, viral, you know, viral illness. So why don't we get right to it, uh, Dr. Ryder's, um, doctors Ryder. Um, so what was the basis for using uh, ivermectin in patients with COVID-19? So I'll take that. Um, so first of all, it's an honor and pleasure to be here. Um, so ivermectin is a drug that was developed in the late 1970s. It has been used uh, since then to treat a wide range of parasitic infections, such as filariasis, onchocerciasis, strongyloidiasis, and even scabies. It was initially used in veterinarian medicine, but eventually was adopted into humans uh, due to its great safety profile. It has been used worldwide as a global donation program and uh, over three and a half billion doses have been distributed in countries for the past 30 years. Um, it is usually administered as a single oral dose on an empty stomach, since many of these parasitic diseases affect the GI tract and the drug does not need to be absorbed. 
Um, as far as there have been multiple in vitro studies looking at the effectiveness of ivermectin against a range of viruses, mostly RNA viruses, such as HIV, dengue, Zika, West Nile virus, and even against um, the DNA pseudorabies virus. And uh, as far as the mechanism of action, the purported mechanism of action would be that the drug prevents the binding of the viral protein to this important alpha beta into the cell nucleus. Therefore, it would prevent the normal viral transcription and allow for the host's natural antiviral response to take over. So when we first uh, were in uh, Broward County, we started seeing our first cases of uh, COVID-19 somewhere in late March or early April. And that's when those patients started being admitted to the local hospitals. So as far as treatment, early data suggested uh, possible effectiveness of a hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin-based protocol, but... Um, you know, that didn't necessarily pan out too well. And then uh, what, what ended up happening is uh, some patients did not respond to that protocol as well as uh, was expected. And they continue to deteriorate, especially patients who were admitted uh, to the hospital. So at that time, an in vitro study was published by Dr. Kelly and Dr. Wagstaff out of Monarch University in Australia. And that was uh, that first week in April that uh, documented that ivermectin when uh, incubated with simian kidney cells, superinfected with SARS-CoV-2, caused significant reduction in viral RNA copies. In that original study, within 24 hours of administration of ivermectin, the investigators noticed a 93% reduction in viral copies and by 48 hours that had improved to nearly 100% uh, reduction in RNA copies, which effectively translated in a loss of all uh, viral material. And, uh, and those few viral particles that uh, were still there were essentially uh, non-recoverable and non-viable. Within 72 hours, there were no further reduction in the viral RNA. So based on that newly released data, uh, I attempted use of ivermectin as a rescue treatment for a patient that was admitted at a local hospital who uh, was rapidly deteriorating after having failed conventional therapy. And fortunately for that patient, she responded well within 24 hours to the administration of ivermectin. That then subsequently resulted in several more patients being treated with uh, an ivermectin-based protocol. And lo and behold, we noted significant improvement in those patients as well as compared to our historical baseline outcomes. So based on that observational experience, we requested and submitted a uh, proposal to the Institutional Review Board, and uh, we proceeded to put together a retrospective observational study looking at the effectiveness of ivermectin versus conventional therapy. And uh, that really was the, the basis of, uh, of the study. Thank you, Dr. Riders. So we're gonna um, move on to um, the methods and, and how, you, how you conducted this trial. Um, if you could answer some of these questions, 
you know, who did you include um, and how did you design the study? Um, if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe the algorithm that was mentioned in the paper. Okay. So based on the IRB approval, we were allowed to enroll up to 300 patients on the ICON study. So we obtained a list um, weekly of all patients who had been admitted with COVID-19 diagnosis to any of these four hospitals associated uh, with us. Um, the enrollment took part uh, took place in beginning of middle of March, March 15th, and was completed on May 11th, and we had follow-up until May 19th, 2020. Um, so we looked at charts of patients who had been admitted to the hospital with a diagnosis of COVID-19 sequentially. Um, there were 27 patients who did not meet the enrollment criteria uh, due to IRB-imposed exclusion criteria such as being um, younger than 18 years of age, being pregnant, being in jail, etc. Um, so in the end, we, it turned out that we had 280 sequential patients that were enrolled in the study, um, amounting to 107 of the patients were in the usual care group and 173 were in the usual care plus ivermectin group. So just a word. So essentially there are two cohorts, one group that received usual care, which at the time was mostly um, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, some kind of protocol inclusive of those drugs. And then the second group, which was the patients that received the same regimen with the addition of at least one um, dose of ivermectin. So by having the, this ivermectin administration, they fell into the ivermectin group. And, and was that protocolized in any way at your institution or was there an algorithm that helped a physician make that call? Yes, so after the initial case series, prior to starting the RB process, um, the pharmacies at the hospitals noticed an improved outcome in the patients. And they took this through the joint PNT of the four hospitals. And that then was submitted to the four chiefs of staff at the four hospitals. And the hospitals essentially endorsed the ivermectin-based protocol, looking at uh, use of uh, 200 micrograms per kilogram as a single dose of ivermectin. Having said that, some patients didn't get it. Some patients got just 12 milligrams. One patient only got three milligrams. So it was really at the discretion of the individual provider. And uh, during that same time frame, 107 patients got no ivermectin at all. So it was not a mandated protocol to follow. It was a voluntary, hey, listen, this is something we have seen that works. Uh, you may want to consider this. And that's how we ended up with uh, some patients in one group and some patients in the other group. There was, a, however, a protocol in regards to patients who received hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. They had to have uh, daily QTC monitoring, sometimes cardiology consultation. So that was, they kept an eye on that. And, and Dr. Sherman, can you talk a little bit about what out outcomes uh, you chose to study, or what was studied in the in the in this um, in this uh, paper? Yeah, so um, I wanted to first discuss the propensity matching and the uh, multivariate. Um, you know, in terms of outcomes, the major outcome we wanted to see was mortality, um, and um, 
one of the issues with a retrospective study like this, um, and by the way, the data is coming in the next couple of slides to answer some of the questions coming up. Um, in any event, so one of the one of the issues is that you know these are not randomized, you know, and you have two groups, and how do we choose who is is getting what? Um, so the idea of propensity score matching is that we are taking all the patients that are in the study, um, and then we are looking at the propensity to be chosen in either group. And that could be based, and, and in, the, in the study, we talk about what different uh, covariants we look at that could affect it. And the idea is that each of these variates uh, that might have an effect on um, getting or not getting the drug uh, would be matched. So at the, uh, you know, by the, when we do the uh, matched protocol, we actually have as close as you can get in a retrospective study uh, to having, having two balanced populations. Um, the multivariate adjustment um, we also did, and, you, and to be honest, you don't really need to do both, but uh, we thought that um, in a study of such import, um, given that um, you know, we didn't have uh, you know, a random selection, um, that if we adjusted for the different covariates that could have an outcome, uh, an effect on the outcome, you know, that that would be better. Um, you know, and, and essentially um, with the adjustment, we're looking to see, let's say that um, if you adjust for age, for use of uh, other medications, for um, the, the other well-known um, causes of increased uh, mortality um, and still see that drug had an effect, you know, that, that adjustment tells us that, you know, there's a stronger signal here. Um, and then um, in, the, in the propensity matching, of course, we're basically saying that, you know, if we equalize the groups in the best way we can statistically, uh, again, understanding that it's not randomized, and we still see a difference, that's another signal that, you know, the difference in mortality is present. Um, the other things that we looked at um, were in intubated patients, whether there was an effect on, um, on the ability to extubate, and we looked at length of stay. Am I, am I leaving anything out, guys? No? Just the all-cause mortality in the non-severe patients. Right. All right. So let's talk um, about everybody's very uh, interested in learning the results, as I can tell in the um, <laughs> chat box. So let's get on with it. I'll I'll make this a little easier so we can move forward quickly. So um, we talked about the enrollment. We talked about how we thought about it. And for the most part, both the cohorts are pretty uh, well matched. Um, I do see a few differences if you want to editorialize really briefly. Uh, the amount of patients who received corticosteroids, about 20% in the usual care group, and then about 40% in the ivermectin group. Uh, if you want to talk about that, and then both groups received pretty high amounts of azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine, about 90% um, for both. So that I just want to highlight the second part, and then if you can editorialize on the steroid part of it. So, so there's, go ahead. So there were two things about the steroids. Um, you know, one, 
on the one hand, this was done before the recovery trial. So um, patients that got steroids in general were the ones that were sicker in the ICU. Um, the, um, and the other thing to note was, you know, it's, it's one of the things that we matched for. Um, in fact, when we, we had to redo the propensity analysis after the recovery trial came out, um, you know, which, we did. You know, I, mean, I don't know what more to say about that, really. <laughs> so I, I do think that part of this is also, uh, and this answers a question by uh, Kevin Keller uh, briefly, uh, sort of, is the data is changing. Practices are changing very, right. very rapidly. Uh, so yes, that does influence how we do things, but also uh, how different hospitals are seeing patients is changing. Right. So some places are seeing a bulk of patients now. Some saw them a month ago. Some saw them a month later. So I, I think that 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 explanation does make sense. Uh, so, you know, really quickly moving on with the results. I want to talk about um, the next slide, Divya, which is can you briefly tell us what were the outcomes in the un there was a slide afterwards after this uh, this what were the outcomes in the unmatched cohorts and then what were the outcomes in the matched cohorts how were they different and what did you make of them I can do it okay so if you look on table two um, the first four columns would be in the unmatched cohort and then the next one to the right, to the right, the matched cohort. So looking at the unmatched cohort, you see that mortality was 27 out of 107 in the control group, meaning the non-ivermectin group. And in the ivermectin, it was uh, 26 out of 173. So that is 15%. So in other words, it was 25% in the control group versus 15% in the ivermectin group with a, a p-value of 0 0.03. So that is significant. Um, in the, uh, I wanna mention what the severe is. So this is one of the secondary outcomes. We're looking at the mortality in the severe uh, pulmonary um, group at onset. So what does that mean? When either at the time of the ivermectin administration or at the time of the receipt of um, uh, hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin, we checked patients' uh, FiO2 requirements. So they would fall into the severe category if they required FiO2 of 50% or greater, if they required non-invasive ventilation, um, high flow nasal cannula, or if they were intubated for mechanical ventilation. So those were the severe patients. So in this severe group, we saw that 21 out of 26 um, in the, tw there were 21 deaths out of 26 severe patients in the control group versus 819 over 49, which is in essence, um, a difference of 80.7% of mortality in the severe group uh, versus 38.8% mortality in the uh, ivermectin group of severe patients. Um, and this is actually in line with other studies, which um, other observational studies um, at the time, which showed the mortality in intubated patients or in severe pulmonary patients in excess of 90, 85 plus percent. So at the time, this was not, um, we, there wasn't the striking difference, but the mortality in the severe population in the control subject was pretty much what we had been seeing um, at the 
time um, all over the world. And once again, the p-value was significant, 0 0.001. Um, as far as mortality in the non-severe pulmonary patients, there's a trend towards improved mortality, so 7.4 versus 5.6. However, it did not meet statistical significance, p is 0 0.61. Um, same thing happened with successful extubation. There was a trend, to, a trend towards improved um, likelihood of extubation or improved extubation rate in the patients who were on ivermectin, 36 versus 15, um, but did not meet quite statistical significance. And we believe that's because the number of these events were very low and therefore we did not, study was not powered sufficiently to see that difference. And as far as length of stay, it was pretty much a median of seven days for both groups. Um, and we do have a uh, proposed um, explanation for that. Uh, since we were looking at not only all-cause mortality, but if patients got discharged, they were either discharged alive or they were in some cases awaiting transfer to rehab facilities or nursing homes, et cetera. So many of these patients, they no longer were under status of hospital where they were just kind of waiting for their PCRs to become negative. And that requirement was a negative PCR interspersed by another negative for at least 24 hours. So many patients were just kind of hanging out waiting. Um, so that may have impacted their length of stay. Perfect. Actually, there's a quick question from, um in the chat box, which I think actually might help with clarification. So when you say severe, uh, what and clear me if I'm wrong, uh, please, Dr. Uh, Dr. Ryder, that this means severe pulmonary involvement, which you define as the need for FiO2 of more than equal to 50%, need for non-invasive ventilation or uh, invasive ventilation at the entry into the study. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we mean by severe and non-severe. Oh. Very good. So, Let's move on to table three, which talks about uh, briefly about um, the matched analyses. So what did we learn from there? Or do you want to go back to that table two and talk about the matched, the propensity squared group? Yes, I'm sorry. You're right. Yes. So in that uh, second part of table two, you look at the patients that actually have been matched and the all-cause mortality in those matched individuals actually is still statistically significant. It went from 24% mortality down to 13% all-cause mortality. And uh, that translated to a number needed to treat of 8.9. That means for every nine people we treated with this protocol, we saved one life. If you look at that number needed to treat, that's markedly better than many other interventions that we're currently doing in healthcare. The all-cause mortality in patients with severe pulmonary involvement decreased from 82% to 32%, which remains statistically significant, just as it was in the unmatched group. The same thing happened though in the non-severe pulmonary involvement. There was still a decrease in mortality, but that did not meet statistical significance. And honestly, we did not expect that to meet statistical significance. We knew based on power analysis that our study was massively underpowered to pick up an expected small difference. Hence, these findings are 
or not unexpected. I mean, we're looking at doing further studies right now, and we realize the number of patients that needed to be enrolled in the study to pick up these differences is going to be large. And as far as the successful extubation rate, we again saw a significant uh, improvement in successful extubation rate, yet it did not meet statistical significance. In my opinion, once again, it has to do with the power of the study. There were not sufficient patients in that particular group in order to meet the power analysis uh, to, to meet statistical significance. But uh, once again, you know, it did not meet statistical significance or trend, but no statistical significant difference. Agreed. And I think uh, during the pandemic, uh, the placement and, you know, triaging and eventually getting people to the right place, all of that played a part. And then that flow through the hospitals certainly is so much harder. And, and we know this from other studies, right? Uh, cost, cost analysis, flow analysis, it's more evolved than just saying length of stay. So um, I get it. Um, talking about table three, which shows the multivariate analyses of the factors associated with um, mortality. Um, what, what is the take home point uh, from this? So on the multivariate, what we're looking for are covariates that um, were associated with mortality. And the main thing we wanted to see was when we adjust for things such as age, sex, smoking, race, comorbidities, that there's still an effect of ivermectin, you know, which you can see in the first line that there was. Um, we also see, not surprising, uh, you know, based on what's been out there, that the older you are, uh, the more likely you, you are to, uh, uh, to die. Um, and uh, what you're seeing is basically a, a 5% per year uh, increase. That's actually what the uh, confidence, what the odds ratios are showing you. Um, we didn't see race, which is sort of interesting because others have. But when we did a further analysis later, uh, it turned out that we didn't see race because of uh, where the writers are practicing. Um, they're basically in uh, a part of Florida where you are... Uh, young and black or old and Jewish. Um, you know, so that, that kind of fell out. Um, and not surprisingly, if you presented with a severe presentation and that was basically the high oxygen requirements or um, hemodynamic instability, then um, you, know, you were also more likely to die. But when you adjust for all of these, you know, what, what does still pop out is ivermectin. Mm-hmm. You know, and these adjustments obviously are, are important because if, if you don't do a multivariate in a study like this, you know, how, do you, how do you know that one group uh, is doing better simply because they're younger you know, or yeah. you know, they, they have less, fewer comorbidities? You know, so, so that's actually why we did the analysis in both ways. And thank you for doing that because it is important that you know, we don't continue to perpetuate the healthcare and, you know, inequities during a pandemic. So uh, before we move into discussion that Divya is going to uh, be uh, leading, Dr. Maves, uh, did you want to um, discuss or ask our authors anything in particular with regards to the uh, matched or unmatched um, uh, results or the multivariate analyses? 
Yeah, well, I mean, thank you so much. And, and thank you to Dr. Ryder and Dr. Sherman for the opportunity to be with you today while you share your work. Um, so I, I am an infectious disease physician in addition to a, being a practicing intensivist. And I was uh, joking before we began our panel here that I, at one point when I was an ID fellow, may have depleted my hospital stocks of ivermectin on one occasion with uh, my first consult as a new fellow who was a, a gentleman with a disseminated strongyloidiasis. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, certainly a drug I have a lot of clinical experience with and one that I use in my, my ID practice, uh, rarely in my critical care practice. But, you know, I think one of the things a lot of us do, and I suspect uh, you are the same, when we're first looking at any, you know, trial in the critically ill, is we look at the, the baseline mortality in the placebo arm, right? Or in, in our case, the control arm here. 80% is pretty high. You know, when we look at the mortality in prospective randomized trials of COVID-19, for example, and, and you know, and it, it's really useful to hear your definition of severe, and that's a very useful one. There's varying ones floating around there. You know, the WHO uses uh, basically anyone who's hypoxemic is a, is considered severe. So two liters by nasal cannula would be severe disease. Uh, but if I were to apply the definition that you're using, which is a seems like a very sound definition, to say a prospective trial like um, uh, like recovery or like the ACT, in the ACT these would be basically ordinal six and seven, high flow, non-invasive, or intubated. Um, you know, in that those trials, and those were done in probably comparable periods of the pandemic. ACT one was done in you know March April of 2020. Uh, mortality was about 20%, maybe 25% in those two populations. And you have a baseline mortality of 80%. Um, no, just no. No. no, that is 80% was only in the severe pulmonary group. In the that, that's the group I'm referring to, ma'am. I, I apologize. I should be. Okay, no, because be the better. overall group was around 19%, which was yeah, in yeah. studies. Okay. Which seems very consistent, yeah. But in the severe group, meaning requiring advanced oxygenation support, you have about 80%. Now, I think we've certainly seen this in different times in different places of COVID, right? Where we've seen, particularly when a hospital is getting hammered, mortality goes up as your surge response increases. I think we've all seen that. What are your thoughts about that number? Part of the issue is at our particular institution, early on, we were getting hit with a lot of geriatric patients. We yeah. live yeah. Not Florida, which is, you know, where people come usually to die. I mean, you know, it is what it is. You know, they, they, they are born somewhere in New York. And then after they retire, they migrate to Florida. And they are usually in their 70s, 80s. And that's really the population that ended up getting admitted. So I think if you look at different studies and different population centers, you may have different mortalities based on age. If we look at our analysis, we know that age was a major, major contributor to mortality to the extent that even race was washed out as a variable because so many of our patients that were elderly were white and that attributed a lot of mortality to white patients more so than what we would see in other study in the black population. So right. I think the age of our population probably had a lot to do with that. And you think there's a marked age difference that along with the, your, your age difference correlates also with your race and ethnic background difference as well then? Yes, sir. As yes, you had sir. mentioned, sir. Okay, thank you very much. And then, of course, the other observation that I think we just need to probably say, I think I know the answer to this. 
Um, but of course, I'm looking at table three here, and you have a, a, an odds ratio of death of 1.71 with corticosteroids, which I think uh, you know makes everyone nowadays post recovery and the remapcap steroid trial and all of those in the WHO uh, steroid meta analysis. Um, perhaps an eyebrow mm-hmm. cast askew. Uh, I, I think I know the, under, the explanation for this, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Well, the explanation really is that early on, before these trials, steroids was reserved as a last ditch, Hail Mary type of situation mm-hmm. where people had gotten everything else, weren't getting better, weren't ICU on the ventilator for an extended amount of time, and subsequently got steroids. Because early on, many people actually frowned upon the use of steroids in COVID-19 mm-hmm. because they felt that it would immunosuppress those patients. and prevent their immune system from fighting the infection. Little did we know that you were actually dealing with the uh, cytokine storm where steroids would actually be quite beneficial. So um, I think that has a lot to do with it. Steroids were used in large proportion in those patients that were uh, present with more severe disease. Yeah, remember at the time, the uh, recommendations that were out there um, from surviving sepsis, among others, was to reserve it for the same indications we did for sepsis. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're on pressors and you're not getting better, add the steroid or, yeah. you know, you would add a steroid for another indication. Yeah. Although the initial surviving sepsis ones did also advocate it for ARDS. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I will, I will confess, and this is always my, uh, uh, my, the thing I have, to, the, the confession I have to make when discussing COVID trials is, you know, uh, based on the experience with H1N1, which was largely retrospective data, to be fair, uh, I also was pessimistic about glucocorticoids in, mm-hmm. in uh, certainly in the critically ill. Now, certainly COVID and flu are not the same thing, as we are reminded with some regularity. But based on that analogy, I was, I was fairly skeptical at the time. And proven wrong, and proven wrong in multiple large RCTs, and happy to be proven wrong. Um, <laughs> Agree. Yeah, but that. Uh, thank you for the explanation. That was my my interpretation as well when I saw your paper. But I. But if you want some numbers, so um, many of the the so the mortality in patients on steroid was thirty percent versus the patients not on steroid, which was thirteen point seven. And then if you look at the percent of steroid users who were in the severe group, that was 59% versus 22% in the um, non-steroid users. So once again, you had more higher mortality in patients on steroid, but then these patients were also more severe. Sure. And I, I guess one last somewhat related thing, and this is probably on the table, and then I will, I will uh, turn it back over to, uh, to our colleagues here. Um, given the age and ethnic breakdown, do you, is in here, do we see a difference between recipients of ivermectin versus non-recipients based on race and ethnic background? I don't know. That is to say, did, did more, did more people of African or Latino ancestry receive ivermectin than elderly white people? No, because it was weight-based. No, no, the number of people that got it. Oh. I don't think we looked at that specifically. Yeah, we did. There wasn't much difference. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, the multivariate, we adjusted for it. Yeah. Um, but even with that, I think in table one. Um, so I have the data in 
front of yeah. me, if I might just, uh, yeah, I always love supporting no science. So, um, yeah, no, there was no difference. It is uh, in uh, the black population, it was 51% and 56% usual versus ivermectin. White population, 32 versus 23%. Actually, the white patients, if anything, received lesser ivermectin. I don't right. know if that means much. And then Hispanic population, 11 versus 12%. So rather very, very comparable. Yeah. And then the other thing just to mention, you know, in terms of the corticosteroids is that, you know, in the match cohort, um, you know, we matched for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically the same proportion of uh, patients in usual care in ivermectin uh, received corticosteroids. Thank you, sir. Dr. Sherman, I want to ask a technical question that actually has to do with this table. So um, in your matched cohort, you had a smaller number of patients than in the unmatched cohort. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Like, is that having to, yeah. So yeah. you, there were some people that just couldn't be matched. Correct. Basically. I see. Okay. Yeah. That's, um, you know, the nice thing about um, doing propensity matching is essentially it's sort of, you know, a child of the old case control that we used to do. Um, but if you can't, if you can't match up propensity scores, then you're going to lose people. So the, the nice thing is, you know, you have matching. The bad thing is you're losing a lot of patients, you know, and you're losing a lot of data. Um, there's another uh, way you can um, do it, which is uh, called CEM matching. And I don't remember exactly what it stands for, um, but to be honest, my software wouldn't do it. So, <laughs> and <laughs> propensity matching seemed reasonable enough. All right, thank you so much. So we're gonna move on to the discussion section. I'm gonna lead it off. And then we have quite a few questions in the, in the Q&A and the chat box that we wanna to get to. So I'm gonna start out, you know, I, I'm not a big ivermectin, I haven't, I have not used ivermectin for COVID-19 and actually I didn't even think about it until I read this paper. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to know, so the majority of these patients in this study received only one dose of ivermectin. And I know, Dr. Ryder, you gave that anecdote of your patient who was doing really poorly, you gave one dose and they improved. Like what account, like how does one dose of ivermectin, how does that help? Like, what do you think is happening? You know, is the, is the, is the signal real? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. So what we know now is much more than what we knew at the time. So, for example, at this point in time, I would not advocate for giving a single dose of ivermectin. We know from studies that have come out since then that the ideal dose would be somewhere between 350 to 450 micrograms per kilogram total dose. So I don't administer that in one dose. I administer those patients two sequential doses on day one and day two. So once again, we have learned from, from what has not worked. Now, what I can tell you is that during the study, we saw people respond to it and usually they respond very reasonably rapidly. I would say within 20, 12 to 24 hours, you see a response. But what I did notice later in the study is that some people did not have a sustained response or didn't respond quite as well as other patients. And that's why some patients ended up getting a second dose and 13 patients ended up getting a second dose. Most of these patients were later on in the study. But once again, you know, you look at the enrollment times for the study, you're looking at one month or less. So it was really quite rapid succession, middle of a pandemic. 
If I had to do it over again, would I do it differently? Absolutely. I probably would give higher doses, meaning more ivermectin to these patients. And at the present point in time, I'm giving them day one, day two, if still needed, day eight, day nine, if still needed, day 15, day 22, day 29. So I give much more ivermectin. So uh, granted, I would have done it differently and I think it would be more effective. I mean, I see it's being more effective and subsequent studies that have not yet been peer reviewed and published, but indicate that it's even more effective than what we see in this protocol. And many studies have come out, dozens of studies have come out since then. But yes, one dose was effective, could have been more effective with higher doses. It's okay. to be Great. fair I'll go ahead, Dr. question Sherman. and to you know, answer the second part, do we think it accounts for it? And honestly, that's why we looked at it in two ways. Thank you, Dr. Sherman. So we're going to um, address the audience questions because we have many to, to get through. And I'm really happy to say we have 20 minutes in this uh, in this journal club to talk to talk about their questions. Um, so one of the one of the first questions we asked was asked was, can ivermectin be used as a prophylaxis? Um, and and when should it be stopped? Those were two questions wow. that were asked. Good question. Um, okay. So there, there are people that use it. Um, they, the dose that they're using is uh, 0.4 per kilogram on day one and three, and they repeat it monthly. And the data is anecdotal and not controlled. Um, and a lot of it is not peer reviewed. So maybe. And, uh, you know, I've seen similar studies you know, with 200 micrograms on day one and day three and every other week dosing, the frontline uh, critical care coalition has looked at that. But once again, my concern is differently. My concern is what would this mean long-term if you continue using that drug for one year and you redose it every other week is there a cumulative effect of the drug? I don't think that has ever been looked at. We do know, for example, from Norwegian measles that- Norwegian scabies. scabies. sorry, Norwegian scabies, that you can use it on the regimen that I'm currently using and the data is out there, the safety data is out there, but that's what I have been hesitant to go a different route because of the safety data to me is, is the biggest concern. I don't want to do harm. And the other- Final point on that is that, you know, those studies that are out there are mostly open label. And um, the largest one, I believe the um, uh, healthcare workers chose to use it or chose not to use it. So are the people that cho choose to use it also masking more because, you know, they're more worried. So I don't, I honestly don't know what to make of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And as far as... Yeah, I mean, oh, oh, I'm, I'm, oh, I apologize, please. Oh, it's we're doing both, um, well, post-exposure prophylaxis, pre-exposure prophylaxis and treatment. Um, there was this recent study in um, Argentina where they did um, eight weeks of, I believe, weekly ivermectin, and then they took a 10-week vacation, and their numbers were still pretty good in terms of prophylaxis. Um, I believe the FLCCC is doing ivermectin every other week 
Um, they believe that doing it every third week, you start dropping the effectiveness to maybe in the 90s. If you do it once a month, maybe now into the 80s. But uh, yeah. anecdotal experience and what we've been reading is um, somewhere between every week or every two weeks with very good uh, prophylaxis. But we don't use that currently. We do not. We do not advocate or use that currently. And talking about that, um, segueing into what you said about not using NDFLCCC. So the question from Bruce Friedman is why, based on your data as well as the FLCCC review, the UK meta-analysis, and then some of the trials that are going on, uh, which are so consistently showing positive results with ivermectin, why is it that um, you know hospitals or physicians are not using this more often? I think this has a lot to do with regulatory agencies. Uh, in uh, late December, I had a Senate subcommittee hearing regarding early treatment of COVID-19. One of the things that we advocated for was for the NIH to review the data on ivermectin, which they have not looked at since August, since the late last week in August. Now, since then, the Senate subcommittee requested that the NIH look at the data again, which they did on uh, January 6th. So we're waiting for the NIH to take another look at that. I also know that the WHO put, uh, requested a study by Dr. Hill to look at the data for ivermectin. And in that particular study, it showed an 83% improvement in outcome, but the WHO is still waiting on two studies, randomized control studies that are going to come out later this month. Subsequent to that, the WHO is also considering taking a position. Now, if either one of those regulatory agencies takes a position, I think at that point, the use of ivermectin is going to explode. So is that also, uh, assumably, why we don't have a randomized trial? It's, you know, first of all, therapeutics have changed. I think we have to recognize that we are one year into understanding this disease. This is the most rapid, I, I want to say, translation or even application of knowledge data and then learning from it. So keeping that in mind, um, would you say that it's just a little time and then randomized trials are coming up or do you see it, foresee any other barriers? I foresee barriers. We received funding. We received funding for a randomized inpatient, randomized controlled trial on the use of ivermectin. And I have to jump through hoops, barriers, fend off windmills with administration, whereas I have hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line to run a large multi-center study. Administration should be saying, how can we help? How can we help? And they are nowhere to be found. And I think that is the sad part of this because this is not funded by a large pharmaceutical company. This is funded through a foundation that sees the value. And because it's not driven by large pharma, I think there is reluctancy to do these trials across the board. I mean, we are ready, literally ready to proceed with a study. And uh, I'm running into major, we're running into major obstacles. And it's also kind of sad that many of the studies have been done in different countries, Bangladesh, Egypt, Argentina, Spain, um, and so on. And um, 
I guess the WHO may end up looking at these studies because the CDC, I think they're just waiting for American data. Um, but if you put all of, that's what Dr. Hill was doing. He was putting all of these studies worldwide together. And I think putting everything together, I don't remember how many 5, studies, 5,700 patients. patients, many, I think close to 3,000 were randomized trials, another 4,000 were observational, but it's close to the number that you get in the recovery trial. But I guess there's a little bit of ethnosis. Yeah, I think, I think the two that are coming out later this month um, are a little bit better controlled, and hopefully that'll, that'll give us some more convincing data. Um, right. Or, or, or not. not. Right. And, that, and that's or always not. the thing, right? And, 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 and this is, I think, one of the great challenges we have in, in COVID times is, you know, as someone who also has probably gave, has given out more chloroquine than most other intensivists over the course of his career uh, for a different indication, to be fair, you know, I think a lot of us still feel a little burned from that experience. And I think that is driving some of the reluctance that, uh, yeah. that, um, enthusiasm-based practice, and, and, and I obviously to, our, to Dr. Ryder and to Dr. Sherman, I don't mean you guys, but I mean among many of us, and we've all felt it, we've all felt it in these times, right? That, um, uh, that good ideas take on lives of their own, but often are, you know, don't pan out. Mm -hmm. And the randomized controlled double-blinded trial is the gold standard of medical evidence for a reason. Um, <clears throat> and even and, and even something as carefully matched as your own work, we all intellectually acknowledge that there are unknown, undetected biases, right? right. That we just can't predict, right? Um, and, and I think that is probably, I suspect the hydroxychloroquine experience is driving some of this reluctance. And, and, I, and I totally feel for you for the challenges of getting an RCT uh, underway without external support. That's, that's hard. I mean, for someone like myself who who is involved in other trials, and I've been fortunate that I've been part of large networks and haven't had to worry about this. I mean, I can tell you that the the NIAD treatment trials are not industry sponsored, but they are NIAD sponsored, right? Um, uh, and you have that institutional oomph behind you; it makes it easier to do. Um, but but in terms of you know. Uh, What's the term I'm looking for? I think the convalescent plasma experience might be a better analogy here now, the more that I think about it, that um, the widespread use of convalescent plasma through emergency use authorization really hampered the conduct of good RCTs in the United States mm -hmm. as a result, right? And, right. And, and ultimately, and this is perhaps the, uh, the, the, uh, the flip side of something um, uh, something you said a moment ago, uh, the, the kind of the high quality one RCT of plasma in hospitalized patients ultimately came out of Argentina and was published in the New England Journal, right? And so hopefully the preprint, pre-review process won't hamper some of these studies, which I have not had the chance to read myself, but I'm aware of Dr. Hill's meta-analysis uh, from Iraq, from Bangladesh, from Egypt, uh, can get into quality journals after a rigorous peer review. Right, because that changes things. Right, that's different. But the the, the concern about disregarding studies from uh, low and middle income countries is a totally legitimate one. I just wrote uh, an editorial for a journal that has not yet come out yet, so I won't uh, say too much about it. But one of the observations that I tried to convey there is that 
it's not totally inappropriate to to look at data done in other settings and other times and say, okay, does this actually apply to a North American population, right? And I think in sepsis, we have many good examples of that and fluid resuscitation is the most obvious one, uh, allowing for the variance in what we consider an appropriate amount of volume resuscitation in a septic patient. Uh, randomized trials of simple administration of one to three liters of crystalloid in Sub-Saharan Africa in children and adults have all crashed and burned, right? Whereas I don't think that reflects any of our experience and certainly not a lot of the RCT experience. We're still waiting for the Clover trial and so forth. Um, but that idea that an intervention for the same basic disease done in one place may have different outcomes in another place, right? So it could be that a trial conducted in, in Egypt, and I spent part of my ID fellowship in Egypt, and Cairo is a great city, by the way, if you haven't gotten a chance to go there. Um, it, something may work in an Egyptian population and may not work in a North American population. That doesn't mean their trial's wrong. That doesn't mean our trial's right. It just means that it's different populations, different standards of care and so forth. And so the idea that NIH would wanna say, okay, I get it, but I kinda wanna see it done in at least a comparable setting with a similar baseline standard of care. I don't think that's an unreasonable ask from the NIH guidelines panel, which I am explicitly not on, by the way. Um, food for thought. Yeah, no, I think um, I think we have to find a balance, right? Um, and 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 again, I have to say, um, criticizing science is super easy. And I was saying this before we got on together. Criticizing yeah. science is very easy, right? Doing science is very hard. Yes. So, so <laughs> and 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 this is again. I mean, it's a it's it's a beautiful analysis, and oh. and and something that needs to be followed up on. Right? Yeah. So I just want to tell you guys, I know we all are facing challenges. I think we're all doing what we can. So thank you for that. And, and keep doing what you're doing. I'm sure you'll, your patients are better for it. Yeah. For the science. Yeah. That you're doing. So, Dr. Okay. Writers. I mean, we hope that this gives you some publicity. We really want you to be able to do your randomized trial. It's, yeah, it's exactly. so important because unlike, unlike the drugs that have funding right now, this is, a this is a cheap medicine that's widely available and it could help not just Americans, but people in low-income countries. And, and that is so important. Yeah, because you look at what is currently available, it's either extremely expensive medications with limited survival benefit besides uh, systemic steroids. Most right. of the data does not show uh, significant benefit to remdesivir, no significant benefit to uh, convalescent plasma. All of these things are extremely expensive. Whereas uh, an analysis I read recently, it's like $240 for one kilogram of ivermectin. I'm like, you know, this, you can treat a lot of people with one kilogram of this drug. And that to us was something that was very important because it's a drug with a great safety track record. There is no question about its safety track record. It's inexpensive, widely available, generic. Third world countries are producing this medication themselves. They do not rely on third countries to, to provide them with the medication. It has great promise. We just need more studies and uh, hopefully, you know, these things are gonna be forthcoming. Absolutely. But of, but of course, so, the, the major reason why 
you know, you can't get funding for a large study is everything that you just said. Yep. Well, mm-hmm. the, um, the, the science discourse aside, we have five minutes. So I'm going to go into rapid fire mode, as I call it. Okay. So I have identified some questions which might have discrete answers. Uh, and if not, that's okay. So short answers. Our question is, um, what is the time from admission to hospital to ivermectin administration in your study? And, um, or do you have any recommendations for that? Um, I don't remember the time to administration. I mean, uh, it was within 48 hours for the great majority. I think 75% got dosed within 48 hours. And most and, of them earlier than that. And my okay. recommendations are as soon as the patient has a positive test for COVID-19 at the present point in time, administer it. And if you know that the patient has had exposure, close exposure to somebody with COVID-19, do secondary prophylaxis, which we're currently doing widely. If a spouse has COVID-19, presumably the second spouse has it too. There is just very little chance that they would evade that. So I would treat the spouse pending even testing. Got it. So, um, that, that's fair. Next question. Uh, Although I, I did manage to avoid getting COVID-19 when my wife had a fairly bad case, but then again, I might be a little more efficient at turning my house into a biocontainment unit than most people are. Right. <laughs> um, a quick question for you. Did you guys do, when you were matching, did you match for steroids in the severe versus non-severe group? And if you did, uh, can you clarify if that showed a difference? You said, um, I know you already talked about this, so you can give a short summary. Yeah. Uh, yes, they were propensity matched. Um, and I don't know, to be honest, whether uh, the numbers of severe were the same or not, but they likely were because actually they had to be because everybody that got steroids was severe. And finally, I think a lot of people are asking, you know, why is this not a randomized trial? And we've talked about all this in detail, but do you think that maybe this could be something an adaptive? So I'm asking you a specific question. Do you think an adaptive trial could bring this on as a wing now? Yes. The short answer is yes. As I said, I have the funding to do a randomized controlled trial for inpatient use of ivermectin for COVID-19. I just need the hospital and logistical support to make it happen. But Perfect. yes, the short answer is yes, absolutely. Because I know Dr. Maves wanted to know where does this fit in like trial systems like, you know, Remap or how do we go about it? Well, I have to tell you, Divya, I'm, I'm sweating a little bit. Uh, I hope Chess calls me back, but I know we want to have you guys back. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, keep doing good science. We're you know, just proud of all of our colleagues. I want to thank everybody across the world for doing what they're doing. It's been long, it's been exhausting, but just getting to see everybody together, it's been, that's what gets us through. And I'm hoping that with the vaccines, we're going to see a little bit of normalcy settle in. Um, so really, really thank you for doing everything. Finally, we do have this uh, webinar, uh, this journal club eligible for CMEs. Uh, you will have this information available and follow up. Um, if you go in uh, and you know answer the questions, you can claim CME credits uh, for attending this session. Uh, so thank you, thank you very, very much. Thank you for the questions. Um, we will, I'm sure, reach out to everybody over social media and over email and such when the next uh, 
doing the club is due. Right, Divya? Yes. Thank you. Viren, you did a fantastic job. Thank you to the authors and spending time talking to us about our about your study. Studies are so much more meaningful when we can talk to the authors about it. So thank you for doing that. And Dr. Maves, thank you for your insight um, from your experience and, and your and your knowledge. And uh, thank you for, to the audience for joining us. Bye. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Bye, everybody. Take care, everyone.